Hello, everyone, and welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 1970s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. On today's episode, we examine the legacy of the Troubadour, the live music club venue in Los Angeles, and how the Troubadour became an integral part of 70s pop culture. But first, hey, it is the fifth anniversary of this very podcast, and I could not be happier to head into year six with you. Five years is like 50 years in the podcast community, and I would do this if I had no listeners at all, but I'm very happy that I do, and I'm very happy that you hit play. If you just found the show, I am a teacher by day, podcaster by night, but I do hope that even for those who remember the 70s, that you still learn a little something from this show, too. As always, I very much appreciate your notes and your voicemails and your cash support. Just a dollar a month from you helps keep the ads away and helps pay the bills for the podcast. You know, do you listen to other podcasts and get tired of the ads for mattresses and underpants and things like that? I do. So if you'd like to keep those things away, Just chip in a dollar, whatever you can per month. Go to ftr70.com and click on the Be a Patron link at the top of the page. You know, it is notable if a club serves as the launching pad for one or two stars. But some clubs take on legendary status because of the sheer number of stars that get their start on their stage. The Bluebird Cafe which opened in Nashville in 1982, comes to mind in country music. Uh, CBGB, which opened in New York in 1973, is one of those places for the harder-edged rock and punk music. But on the West Coast, it is the troubadour that is part of rock and pop lore. The number of music and comedy acts, by the way, that got their start here is important. But so is the community that was created. In the late 1960s and the first half of the 70s, this was the place for the newcomers and the established stars to hang out. Linda Ronstadt described it as a cafe society. Bonnie Raitt said the club was the heart of an entire music scene where upwards of 30 musicians became friends. They would meet at the Troubadour to play or hear music. And then they would drive a few miles up into Laurel Canyon to continue on with the singing and the other things that one does in their 20s. I mean, we're talking like Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell and James Taylor and Carole King. I could go on and on. Doug Weston opened the Troubadour as a jazz club on La Cienega Boulevard in Los Angeles in September 1957. At that time, it had seating for about 65. You know, we like to call that intimate Four years later, he moved it to 9081 Santa Monica Boulevard, and it eventually expanded into a space that was formerly occupied by a Porsche mechanic shop, hence the steel-reinforced balcony that it used to have. With that, some 300 music bands could find a seat to hear some folk music legends in the making, like uh, Phil Oaks or Judy Collins. As rock music took hold in the late 60s, this also became evident at the Troubadour. When Roger McGuinn, a traditional folky, showed up and started playing Beatles songs, this was tantamount to treason among the hardcore folk fans. But little did they know, 
This was also the birth of the birds, as McGuinn came back not long after that with Gene Clark, and when they heard David Crosby sing, history was made. A little impromptu harmonizing by those three at the Troubadour, and, well, we have the birds. Tom Waits was one of those musicians that got involved with the folk scene in the 60s, so much so that he dropped out of high school in his senior year and he migrated north from suburban San Diego to L.A. On Mondays at the Troub, they had this uh, kind of an open mic night that they called the Hoot Nanny. Well, it was a Hoot Nanny. They called it the Hoot, which was this opportunity for anyone who could sing or thought they could sing to put their name on the list. If you got there when the club opened, you could put your name on the list and there would be about 10 to 15 different acts that could play that one night. If you made the list, you were allowed to perform maybe a three or a four song set and then you just hoped that you didn't screw it up. This is how Tom Waits described the experience, and I quote, I used to take the bus to the Troubadour and stand out front at nine o'clock in the morning on a Monday and wait all day to get up and do 15 minutes on stage. Because you know, you never had confidence. You have absolutely no self-esteem. But you also have this mad wish to do something public at the same time. They swing a spotlight around right by the cigarette machine to pick you up. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the troubadour is proud to present. And they'd say your name. And they'd walk you up to the stage in the spotlight. I used to watch other acts do that. And I'd be in the audience with my coffee. And I said, that's it. That's for me. Tom Waits also said of his first performance there, quote, I was scared shitless. He is kind of difficult to categorize as a musician. Mick Houghton, who was writing for Time Out magazine way back in 1976, said this about Tom Waits. Waits is a misfit, a refugee from the beat era of the 50s, but living and writing very much about the 70s. He's not a jazz singer, though his phrasing is a hybrid spoken slash sung scat that owes a strong debt to jazz and blues, though his musical accompaniment is a blend of Monk, Oscar Brown Jr., and Oscar Peterson. Now, of course, he didn't know it then, but now we know that this future Rock and Roll Hall of Famer didn't have too much to worry about. Uh, This unique brand of gravelly storytelling led to him getting a manager, Herb Cohen, who saw him at the Troubadour in 1971. And then, after he continued to play there, he was signed to a a recording contract with Asylum Records in 1973. His first album for Asylum came out in March of 73. That first record, Closing Time, is very much in the classic 70s singer-songwriter vein, the type where you can kind of just close your eyes and you feel like you are in a dark, smoky club somewhere. Not many people paid much attention to Closing Time, at least not then, and it seemed that Waits still wasn't sure if he was a jazz musician or a folk singer. But the opening track of that record, Old 55, Old 55, excuse me, attracted the attention of another asylum band and regulars at the Troubadour, a new group called The Eagles. It's a hauntingly beautiful song. The title refers to a car, but the song is about the morning after a hookup. The Eagles recorded it in 1974, which kind of brought some attention to Waits, although he was not a real big fan of their recording. Here's just a little bit of the Eagles cover of Old 55. Well, my time went so quickly 
I went lickety splitly out to my old 55. As I pulled away slowly, feeling so holy, God knows I was feeling alive. So that's from On the Border by the Eagles, and Tom Waits thought it was too clean. Here he is, live in Tucson, Arizona, in 1975, with an introduction to the song that he wrote. Well, is there anything uh, anybody might want to hear? Uh... Want to hear that? It's a... It was an old 1955 Buick Roadmaster, the first car I had, well, first uh, real luxury automobile I had. I had a lot of these old uh, tin Lizzie's, and uh, with this, I invested a good $125 in that car, and uh, it had a gold metal fleck top, and uh, it ran like a dance sewing machine, and my, it was... Uh, you might say it was just about as slick as deer guts on a doorknob. <laughs> and uh, hotter than a fresh fire than a forest fire, I guess. And this is uh, called my old 55. interpretation of the song and given that uh you know tom waits wrote the song so he certainly has a right to decide if he likes a cover or not i can see why based on how he performs the song he wasn't a huge fan of the eagles cover i liked them both uh i actually also liked a cover that came 20 years later some of you might remember a movie from 1995 called boys on the side and Sarah McLaughlin recorded Old 55 for that soundtrack, and it was also quite beautiful. You might know uh, Donny Hathaway for his duets with Roberta Flack, uh, Where is the Love and The Closer I Get to You. Fans of the sitcom Maud, a spinoff of All in the Family, and starring future golden girl B. Arthur, might remember him for this. Diver was a freedom rider. She didn't care if the whole world looked. Joan of Arc with the Lord to guide her. She was a sister who really could. Isadora was the first bra burner. Angel that she showed up. Oh, yeah. And when the country was falling apart. 
That's right. That's how we did theme songs back in the 70s. That's Donny Hathaway with uh, the theme song to Maud. You know, his solo work, though, it's some of the best soul music of the 70s. And the Troubadour was the site of one of the greatest live soul recordings of the 1970s, Donny Hathaway Live. For Donny Hathaway, while it seemed like he was always destined to be a musician, he could never quite reconcile the type of musician he believed he should be. He grew up in St. Louis and was a professional gospel singer at the age of three. He took music lessons and he took music classes throughout his life and into college. His band director at his high school said that he was always gospel-oriented, and therein, I think, lies his dilemma. He had a really hard time reconciling making pop music instead of gospel, and so he always included a gospel song on his records. In the fall of 1963, he enrolled in classes at Howard University, thanks in part to a fine arts scholarship because of his piano skills. He started at Howard either wanting to be a teacher or wanting to be a preacher, but music was, it was just in his DNA. Like a true jazz musician, he had this seemingly innate ability to make each live performance a new performance. David Ritz, who wrote a short book about the album Donny Hathaway Live, said this, The live Donny was the most moving Donny, the most unadorned and direct Donny. In the late 1960s, Hathaway worked as a producer and an arranger for the likes of the Staples Singers and Aretha Franklin. He got his first recording contract in 1969 when he signed with Atlantic Records, which was Aretha's label, and he released his first single, The Ghetto Part One. In 1971, he played the troubadour, and after he and his band left the stage, he came out by himself for an encore. He played alone this, again, gorgeous song written by Leon Russell, A Song for You. Listen to how the crowd reacts to Donny Hathaway. Goodness, that's a Donny Hathaway live at the Troubadour in 1971, although it would not be released, that cut, until after his death in 1979. 
There are a lot of covers of uh, this song. I actually like Willie Nelson's, but this one, it's so original. Many years later, Amy Winehouse did a cover of Donny Hathaway's cover. What becomes side one of Donny Hathaway Live was recorded at the Troubadour. It also included What's Going On, The Ghetto, and You've Got a Friend. Side two was recorded at the Bitterroot in New York. I am a different person on stage. I'm the person I want to be. That is what Neil Diamond said in an interview in the early summer of 1971. When it became clear that he was going to go into music rather than be a doctor, which his parents would have preferred, he assumed it would be as a songwriter. His inspiration came from the folk legend Pete Seeger, and for about eight years, that's what he did. He made about 20 bucks a year in royalties. That meant he had to do things like sell vitamin pills door-to-door to make money to do things like eat. After Jay and the Americans recorded Sunday and Me in 1966, he had enough money to go into the recording studio, and Neil Diamond recorded three songs, Solitary Man, Cherry Cherry, and I Got the Feeling. And that, my friends was three hit singles for the Bang record label. At UNI, the label that also signed Elton John, he had a lot more control over what he wrote, which was almost kind of like this uncontrollable force in him. He said, I would like to stop writing. I would like to not have to write the way I do. Ideally for me, I would like to be able to write when I feel like it in my own sweet time and at my own pace. In 1970, like so many other singer-songwriters, Neil Diamond made his way to the Troubadour. While there, he recorded a live album. Ten songs. He wrote every single one of them except for Both Sides Now, which, of course, was written by Joni Mitchell. Yeah, Sweet Caroline is on there. But look, this is decades before we all start singing it at baseball games and in in bars and weddings and things like that. The crowd just kind of claps politely. I would like to call your attention to Solitary Man. This is what it sounded like to the folks at the Troubadour in July 1970. Wow, it's really jammed in here tonight. I really feel sorry for you, you know, like put together. feels great from up here, I got to tell you. This, uh, this show is being recorded, by the way. I don't know if you saw when you came in, there was a uh, sound truck out there. And it's being recorded for our armed forces overseas in Canada. Melinda was mine till the time that I found her Holding Jim Loving him And you came along Loved me strong That's what I thought me and you But I died Don't know that I will But until I can find me A girl that'll stay And won't play games behind me I'll be what I am Solitary man Solitary Man by Neil Diamond. It's kind of one of those in that vein of the early 70s autobiographical singer-songwriter songs, even though it was originally recorded in 1966. Uh, This is what he said. 
I was in Toronto and Solitary Man had just been released. Nobody would play it in the States, but finally it was played and became a big hit in California. I was driving in Toronto when it came on the radio. I just pulled over to one side and listened. I thought it was the fulfillment of everything I ever wanted. Now, fast forward ahead 35 years. Neil Diamond said this in an interview. After four years of Freudian analysis, I realized I had written Solitary Man about myself. Really, let's check some of the lyrics. Don't know that I will, but until I can find me, the girl who'll stay and won't play games behind me, I'll be what I am, a solitary man. Two months after recording Neil Diamond Gold, the record that was recorded at the Troubadour, he returned to the Troubadour to introduce a new British rock singer and a UNI record label mate who was making his American debut at the Troubadour. When reflecting on the death of Doug Weston in 1999, Elton John said of his American debut, My whole life came alive that night, musically, emotionally, everything. It was like everything I had been waiting for suddenly happened. I was the fan who had become accepted as a musician. Indeed, this is me talking now, not Elton. He spent a week in Los Angeles and he left a star. It's September 12th, 1970. The club is full of record executives who are looking for the next big thing and, and they found it. So if there was anyone that he needed to impress the night, it was then. But he also impressed the music critic for the Los Angeles Times, Robert Hilburn. Hilburn announced that there was a new rock star in town. This is part of Hilburn's review. The fact is, the rock scene has been rather depressed lately, except for the band, Credence Clearwater Revival, Joe Cocker, and Leon Russell. It has been a rather unproductive period for a new talent for a couple of years. There have been a lot of million sellers and a lot of electronic noise from Led Zeppelin to Grand Funk Railroad, but little to dig one's artistic teeth into. So Elton John was being welcomed like a new bit of magic. In that interview, Hilburn praised Elton John's originality and said that his crazy outfit was his only showbiz flair. The rest is business, music industry business. Elton said some of the songs on his second album might remind listeners of the band. I can kind of hear it in Take Me to the Pilot. Hilburn said the second record is earthier and closer to the heartbeat of rock than Elton's first record. What does the song mean? Nobody knows. Not even Bernie and Elton. But we do know this that Linda Ronstadt said when Elton John played Take Me to the Pilot at the Troubadour that night, the club, quote, levitated. If you feel that it's real, I'm on trial, and I'm here again, you're present. Like a coin in your man. I am dented and I'll spend with hot trees on Through a glass eye of song is the one danger zone Take me to the pilot for control
Seat of the Pilot. That's from Elton John's second album called Elton John. But if you bought the 45 to your song, your song was the A side, meaning the primary side. I'm trying to explain that to people who never bought a 45. Flip it over. The B side is Take Me to the Pilot. You scored, right? You got two great songs on your 45. Nobody knows what the song is about. Uh, some people tried to kind of make it be about religion, and Elton John said, no, it's it's much more abstract than that. It's not about the lyrics. It's about the performance. So can you imagine having been at the Troubadour that night? You know, like Linda Ronstadt said, the club levitated. Can you imagine having been there hearing that? After his first show at the Troubadour, uh, Bill Graham, the owner of the Fillmore East in New York, offered Elton John $5,000 to perform there which is more than he had ever offered a new artist before. The Troubadour showcased a wide variety of talent, but is perhaps best known as kind of the heartbeat of the singer-songwriter movement of the early 70s. James Taylor, a Troubadour regular, kind of busted that door open with Sweet Baby James in 1971, and then Jackson Brown just walked right in. Much of this was playing into this desire for authenticity that we had in the 70s, or at least music that sounded like it was authentic. You know, James Taylor writes about his own heroin addiction in Fire and Rain, and Carly Simon writes about somebody in You're So Vain. Later we find out that somebody was Warren Beatty. And we just assume that Jackson Brown is writing about his own life in his songs like Dr. My Eyes. Judy Catullus, in her book about living with the changes that the 60s brought, it's uh, called After Aquarius Dawned, said that in the 1970s, traditional authority had lost its influence, especially over the younger generation, driving them toward a host of new experts with real-world credibility. And they gave that credibility to musicians. Here's Jackson Brown reflecting on the troubadour. But uh, it was an amazing place, an amazing time, because at the same time, it was a really important showcase for artists that were about to become huge or just, you know, they would, you know, like Elton John played here before anybody knew who he was. And it wasn't that he was, it was timed, you know, for him to play one gig here. And then from then on, he would play the four on the forum, you know, and so it's very exciting. So if you saw someone like Waylon Jennings here, you know, it was an attempt to get an intimate show for an audience of, you know, a showcase, you know, for an audience of, of fans and writers and get an up close look. But the rest of the time it was a folk club and there were people who played here, uh, you know, all week long and, you know, two shows, uh, Tuesday through Thursday and three shows on Friday and Saturday. And, uh, you know, I saw Chris Christopherson here. I opened for Linda Ronstadt. Again, the legacy of the Troubadour, it's music for sure, but it's also about the community of the people that gathered there. Dr. My Eyes is a song about innocence lost, although it really was inspired by an eye infection. It's just that Jackson Brown's eye problem became a metaphor, as he puts it, for lost innocence and for having seen too much. 
Doctor, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears without crying. Now I want to understand. I have done all that I could to see the evil and the good without hiding. You must help me if you can. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears without crying. Now I want to understand. I have done all that I could to see the evil and the good without hiding. You must help me if you can. Doctor, my Doctor My Eyes was recorded in 1971 and released on Jackson Brown's debut album in March 1972, and it made it to number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. And oh, by the way, Graham Nash and David Crosby are singing in the background. Jackson Brown said he first heard uh, the song on the radio when his girlfriend picked him up from the airport and then turned on the car radio and there it was. And he described that experience as, quote, surreal. I'm sure it was. Like a lot of music clubs, the Troubadour also featured comedy. Now, you have to keep in mind that comedy clubs weren't exactly a thing. I mean, I'm not saying there were none, but certainly not as many as that there will be uh, after the 1970s and into the 1980s and 1990s. Now, stand-up comedy itself was not a 70s invention. Um, Indeed, comedy was a staple of early 20th century radio shows and the Milton Berle and Ed Sullivan TV, TV shows featured comedians. Even the Troubadour itself was the site of controversy when legendary comedian Lenny Bruce was arrested by the L.A. County Sheriff's Vice Squad on October 24th, 1964, oh, pardon me, 1962, after Lenny uttered a so-called obscene word in both English and Yiddish. It was his third arrest in three weeks, and it was for saying the word schmuck. So the headline, as I was kind of perusing, as one does, through all the different news articles that were written about Lenny Bruce at that time, And one of those articles uh, has the headline, Sick Comic Lenny Bruce Arrested Again. Look, I will make the case to anyone who wants it made that Lenny Bruce is as responsible for the evolution of stand-up comedy into something that is smarter and more current and edgier than anybody. And this is something that's going to be carried forth into the 1970s. The other thing that happens with comedy in the 1970s is it gets kind of, I'm going to make something up here, rock and rollized, uh, complete with drugs and alcohol. So, you know, Lenny Bruce, he had a whole lot of legal problems that were making it hard for him to get gigs. And in 1966, he died of a morphine overdose. I really have to wonder what might have happened to him if he had managed to somehow overcome that addiction. I mean, there's going to be an explosion of comedy clubs in the 70s, and comedians are going to become megastars. George Carlin, 
Richard Pryor, Robin Williams, Steve Martin, Cheech and Chong, Saturday Night Live debuts in 1975 and becomes this showcase of satire featuring Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Jane Curtin, Gilda Radner, Chevy Chase. Would there have been room for Lenny Bruce? I don't know. He, he would have been in his 50s by then. I'm not sure. But it would have been interesting to see because he was definitely the trailblazer for them. Steve Martin had been working in comedy before he started opening at the Troubadour. He worked as a writer for two other comedians, the Smothers Brothers. Then he worked as a writer on the Glen Campbell Good Time Comedy Hour from 1962, pardon me, 1969 to 1972. He quit uh, because he thought that the comedy that the Glen Campbell show was producing was just dumb. Now, Steve Martin could sell out arenas. He could sell millions of albums. He had thousands of fans repeating his famous excuse me catchphrase right along with him, just like rock bands had fans repeating the lyrics of their songs. Richard Zoglin, in his book Comedy at the Edge, wrote that Martin's brand of comedy was a take on how Lenny Bruce made fun of, quote, the old showbiz by turning himself into the showbiz phony. Steve Martin becomes the annoying showbiz jerky guy. He said he decided that denying the audience the 1950s-style one-liner was the secret to modern comedy. You know, and if you watch any old uh, YouTube clips of Steve Martin, you know, he would bash into the microphone, um, kind of stumble into the mic stand, make all this distracting sort of noise, that kind of thing. I mean, it seemed like he was making fun of himself. What he was doing is he was making fun of himself, making fun of showbiz or the traditional showbiz star. He also took pride in the fact that he did not interject any political humor into his work at all. He said that he thought that politics was depressing and that there was no point in including it in his comedy. After the death of Betty White on December 31st, 2021, Steve Martin tweeted this. In 1974, I was an obscure opening act for Linda Ronstadt at the Troubadour in Los Angeles. Passing through the lobby before the show, I saw Betty White and her husband, Alan Ludden, waiting in line. I loved Betty White, so I went up to them. I'm so honored to meet you both. And then I said, isn't Linda great? She said, we came to see you. I said, why? Because we heard you were funny. And I was elated. He returned to the Troubadour on Halloween night, 1976. Let's listen into his live set from the Troubadour on that night. Ready to roll? My name is Steve Martin. I'll be out here in just a moment, and uh, we're going to start. We'll be starting in just a few moments, just waiting for the drugs to take effect, and then uh, we'll be going. Okay. Ah, oh, there we go. Beautiful. Thanks for coming down. Uh, we're going to have some fun tonight. Um, so listen, how much was it to get in? Five bucks? <laughs> Okay, paid the money. You're expecting to see a professional show, so let's not waste any more time. Let's go with professional show business. Let's go. Hey. Whoops. Okay, I think we screwed around long enough. Um, okay, let's start, huh? 
I have a good time when I come here to L.A. I really like to come here, and I mean that, because I know that sounds phony, because every entertainer in the world comes out, no matter where they are, they just go, hey, it's really great to be here. And it really sounds phony, but I am sincere when I say, hey, it's really great to be here. I have, I have, there's a lot to do here, and in some other towns there's not so much to do, you know, but in here, I went, today I went to the Turd Museum, that was fantastic, really. They have some fantastic shit there. If you get a chance, go. Uh... Yeah, I guess some of that crap's worth a lot of money, too, huh? I don't know. <laughs> hey, I'm not trying to be a big shot or anything like that, but uh... I get my drinks half price. That's right. For every one you buy, I get two. Okay. So that's vintage Steve Martin uh, making fun of himself, but actually making fun of show business. You might have heard the banjo in there, too. Uh, you probably know by now, if you know anything at all about Steve Martin's career. He is an excellent, he's a world-class banjo player. And he said the reason that he took his banjo up on stage, he said, because it looks like I'm doing things on stage that are not very difficult, even though it's actually very hard. So uh, he wanted the audience to think that he actually was working at something. But he, you know, it's interesting to note that he felt like his brand of humor looked like it was very random and not thought out, thought out. And of course, it actually was. So that was 1976. By 1978, the Troubadour was, as Ricky Lee Jones put it, a used-to-be club for used-to-be singers. Occasionally, it drew in heavy metal bands, and in the 1980s, heavy metal is going to become the main genre of the Troubadour. In fact, David Geffen discovered Guns N' Roses there. But in 1978, it was mostly an empty club. It was kind of a sad, sad remnant of what used to be for the artists that got their start there. Part of the problem for the Troubadour is that Lou Adler and David Geffen opened up the Roxy not far from there in 1973. Another problem for the Troubadour was Doug Weston himself. It seemed like Weston started envying the success of not only the artists that were making big names for themselves and making money, but he was envious of the record executives and the managers, and so he felt like he needed to either make a cut from that or somehow be on their level. That led to him making what a lot of the artists thought were unreasonable conditions. So, for example, if you agreed to play at the Troubadour, he would then put a clause in your contract saying that you had to come back. So, in other words, you get your start at the Troubadour, you get well-known, you get a contract, but then when you are famous, you actually have to come back to the small club, the Troubadour. He started getting kind of eccentric, He was known to be an abuser of drugs and alcohol. So all of this leads to the downfall of the Troubadour. In 1979, Ricky Lee Jones was reflecting on her life just two years prior. She said she didn't have many friends. She didn't have a place to live. She didn't have any money. And a guy she knew was performing at the Troubadour, and he asked her to go over there and sing a couple of songs. She said, I quote, this fella Chuck E., was working back in the kitchen of the club, and that's how I met him. A little later on, Tom, Tom Waits, saw me there, and he and Chuck E. and I started hanging out together. That was a high point in my life. 
She was referring to Chuck Weiss and Tom Waits. While the three of them did hang out together, usually drinking and doing drugs, she began a bit of a turbulent relationship, not with Chuck E., but with Tom Waits. She wrote a song about Chuck Weiss, Chuck E. Weiss, and it became her first single from her first album. She said a lot of people think that it's a happy song, but it's really kind of a desperate lament. Chucky's in love. in love number four on the billboard hot 100 in 1979 and then in 1980 ricky lee jones won a grammy for best new artist she was up against the blues brothers the knack robin williams and dire straits chucky's in love lost the song of the year grammy to what a fool believes written by michael mcdonald and kenny loggins for the doobie brothers Linda Ronstadt migrated to Los Angeles from Tucson, and in 1965, she got a two-week gig at the Troubadour with her band, The Stone Ponies, and then they got a record deal with Capitol Records not long after that. After The Stone Ponies broke up and Linda went solo, she was given some songs that a newcomer in town, Don Henley, had written, and he had hoped that she would record. Here's a little bit of Linda Ronstadt describing how she came to know Don Henley and Glenn Fry. Linda, let's, can we trace things back, first of all, to just the end of your university days? Because you were in university in Arizona. Very yeah. briefly. <laughs> and then from there you moved to California. Yeah. Yeah. How did you go about getting into things when you came to, to L.A.? Oh, it's so weird. You know, it's, it's just luck. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. We came over here and we played some folk music club in Hermosa Beach which is now mercifully a parking lot. And, and it, you know, it was such a dive. I didn't know. I mean, it was the biggest thing I'd ever seen. It was certainly a lot more hot stuff than anything I'd seen in Tucson, you know. And we played some hoot there. and Everyone went nuts, and I thought, oh, I'm great. You know, this is going to be easy. They like it. And, you know, I didn't realize it was just sort of a bunch of stone people trying to make a transition from beatnik to hippie, you know. And um, so I came over, and I... 
I, I, I lived with a bunch of people that I knew from Tucson on the beach. And we just started hanging around the Troubadour. You know, the Troubadour is really responsible for the entire music scene over here. You know, Doug Weston is really, you know, has kept a, a quality club with a good sound system, a place where performers can be very comfortable and do their best, mm -hmm. and other people can see, you know, other musicians can see them. And so it gives the chance for a lot of influences to cross over and intertwine, you know. Because a lot of interesting people have filtered through your band at various times, Linda. I know, it's weird that yeah. way. Um, uh, it's funny, I seem to get people at a, a sort of critical stage in their development and they sort of build their chops. I mean, there's nothing that gets your chops up better as a guitar player than playing every single night, you know, twice a night. And uh, there were a lot of guitar players around L.A. I, I met them all at the Troubadour Bar, you know. I met Bernie Ledden and, mm, gee, uh, Glenn Fry and Don Henley. I met them at the Troubadour Bar. Mm. And they'd just be there. They'd come, you know, they came from Texas and different places and Bernie came from Florida. And, and they'd just be needing a gig, you know, and we'd, we'd know each other, we'd sing. We used to sing in the corner a lot, in the corner of the bar. Douglas Dillard would be there, Ronnie Dillard, and we'd do a lot of bluegrass songs. We'd, toward the end of the evening, we'd get, get singing a lot of white spirituals and stuff like that. The drunker everybody was, the nicer it sounded, you know. <laughs> you know, when I listen to that, it makes me wonder if it would even be possible today to replicate what happened at the Troubadour. And this is not at all passing judgment because I'm sure my cell phone is two feet from me, buried under all the books and papers here. But it makes me think that th this electronic device might actually distract us from interacting with others around us and makes us more independent. So we're not actually as interested in what others are doing or what others are saying. You know, I was watching a an NBA basketball game recently and a former player turned announcer kind of said the same thing about basketball locker rooms. He said that most players are buried in their phones with their headphones on, and it really takes away from the camaraderie and the telling of stories and the sharing. And it just makes me think that maybe that will this will never happen again. Of course, Glenn Fry and Don Henley go on to form the Eagles. John David Souther and Joe Walsh wrote The Sad Cafe, for the Troubadour. It's the final track on what we thought was going to be the last Eagles album. Of course, uh, that was a long run. We know now that the Eagles will eventually reunite. Critics did not love the long run, or actually, often, the Eagles themselves. Um, there was this idea that they were too corporate, etc., etc., etc. Here are some of the lyrics to Sad Cafe. Oh, it seemed like a holy place protected by amazing grace, and we would sing right out loud the things we could not say. We thought we could change this world with words like love and freedom. We were part of the lonely crowd inside the sad cafe.
Sad Cafe, the last song from what we thought was the last Eagles album, The Long Run, in 1979. In 1979, the Eagles was a band that was sick of each other and sick of the music industry. I don't know why fortune smiles on some and lets the rest go free. I love that line. It refers to how some get the breaks and some do not. The troubadour will evolve and it will survive. When COVID-19 hits the world in 2020, the Troubadour's survival was very much in doubt, but donations helped keep it alive, and I'm glad for that. It is a living symbol of a time and of an era when people gathered to make and to hear good music. In its walls, a community was formed, and that community left a lasting impact on 70s pop culture. That is all for this episode of For the Record of the 70s. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the sources for this episode on FTR70.com. If you like what you hear, hey, tell someone about it. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. Let's make year six a great one. Bye, everybody. 